0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Today it is my sincere pleasure to introduce Jackie Spear and Deborah Stevens. They are remarkable, and I promise that this talk is going to be very memorable. Uh, Jackie was California State Senator from 1998 until 2006. She is currently with the law firm of Hanson & Bridget. Uh, When she was a senator, she championed really important issues related to child support, water fluoridation, early AIDS intervention, breast cancer, child abuse prevention programs. And in addition, before she was a senator, she worked at Electronic Arts as the Vice President of Government and Community Affairs. Uh, Debra Stevens, who is her co-author on the book that they're going to talk about, is the co-founder and managing partner for the Center of Innovative Leadership. Uh, This center has worked with hundreds of organizations and leaders, uh, helping them think about innovative leadership and building inspired teams. She is the author of six books, including some wonderfully uh, interesting titles, Maslow on Management, One Size Fits One, and Revisiting the Human Side of Enterprise. Together with a couple of other co-authors I'm sure we'll hear about during their talk, they wrote a best-selling book which just came out a few weeks ago called This is Not the Life I Ordered, 50 Ways to Keep Your Head Above Water When Life Keeps Dragging You Down. This book has been on the San Francisco Chronicle bestseller list for the last three weeks and it's already in its third printing. So, without further ado, Deborah and Jackie.
1: I'll just um, stay on the wings. Well, thank you so much uh, for inviting us. I always love to, I live in a college town now, and I always love to be in a university setting because you're all in a process of becoming, and you all have big dreams now. And um, I want to be able to tell you that's something that you need to keep with you for the rest of your life, especially if you're an entrepreneur. Um, Today, I want to talk to you about managing adversity. Uh, in life and in in business. Because as an entrepreneur there are greater minds than mine on this campus that'll teach you probably everything you ever need to know about finance, about organization, about running a company and building a team. But there's one thing that we we don't talk a lot about and that's adversity. Uh, And entrepreneurs take big risks and many times they lose. Um, And so I want to talk to you, I want to leave you with about seven lessons from a high-heeled warrior uh, who spent 30 years in Silicon Valley and working with all kinds of teams. But it's really going to be a personal human side. And the first lesson that I have is I want you to identify what I call a blue-haired lady. And if you're a guy, it can be a silver-haired man. And it's that one person in your life that believes in you no matter what. Uh, In my case, it was a blue-haired lady. She stood five foot tall. She weighed about 110 pounds and she was my grandmother. She had the persistence of a bulldog and I guarantee you she could negotiate any deal in Silicon Valley, but she was uneducated and she was poor. She believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. She had huge dreams for me, and I never wanted to disappoint her. So she was a dream catcher for me. And all of us have those blue haired ladies in our lives or those silver haired men. And it's important to identify them and nurture them. Because as an entrepreneur, when the chips are down and the stock market's down and you've just mortgaged your house and you lost, it's those people that will remind you why it was all worth it and they'll buck you up. The second thing is, I don't think that we need to network. I think we need to build relationships. And relationships and networking are two very different things. Networking is getting something through someone for some purpose. And building a relationship is caring about someone. And I want to give you an example of the difference. About four years ago, I called up Roger McNamee. Do you, any of you know him? He's Bono, He brought in Bono to do uh, some ventures, and he just bought Forbes magazine. Well, I called him because I knew of him through the Flying Other Brothers, his rock band. I kind of knew that he was a VC, but I didn't really know all of the background. And this amazing thing, I left a message with his secretary, and I said, uh, I need his band to play in Redwood Shores on October 13th because I'm a mom and I'm trying to save the music in the middle school. He called me back within 15 minutes. And I'm like, oh my god, I have this most powerful venture capitalist on the line. And all I said to him is, Roger, I'm a mom on a mission. I need your band, and he started laughing and he said, Deborah, moms have been changing the world for a very long time. The uh, moral of that story is he was, uh, on the day that we needed him, he was on the East Coast. He charted a private jet to fly his band into Redwood Shores where he played nonstop for three hours for Save the Music, and we indeed did save elementary and middle school music. Um, He told me an interesting story that day. He told me that almost every relationship he ever built in Silicon Valley and technology came out of his love for music. It's how he met Steve Ballmer. They used to jam in hotels before anybody knew who they were. Uh, It's how he met so many different people, and later on they did business together, but it was out of the relationships and caring and the love. That it came about, and it's very different from networking. Um, the third lesson from the high-heeled warrior is: I'd like you to think to like the dollars, the kaching, but love the cause. Because when the chips are down, if the cause isn't there, it's easy to give up. If the cause is there, the chips can be down and you can go forward. So at this age, it's very, very important, I think, to find out what your cause is, what you care deeply about, and go for that, because that will take you through the bad times in life. A lot of you have these huge dreams, and when those dreams blow up as they did when uh, the dot-com imploded here. You need to learn that when dreams turn to dust, you vacuum. And what I mean by that is there's scientific research that resilience is something that you do. It's a verb. So you get up and you go forward every day, day in and day out, with hope and optimism. I'd like to talk to you about another lesson about hope and optimism. If you're going to be a leader of any team, I think that you absolutely have to have that. It has to be a part of your DNA. And there are scientific reasons for that right now. There is a doctor at the Harvard School of Medicine uh, who actually has a new book out. And he's talking about he's been working with terminally ill patients. And he said if they lose hope, it's over for them that hope actually stimulates your immune system. Uh, It gives you courage to go forward. So there's some fascinating research going on between hope and optimism. Optimism actually helps you focus on uh, hidden opportunities uh, where you can uh, see where you should go next. So this whole state of mind is very important, uh, whether you're leading a company and also if you're building a grand life. Um, The final thing I'd like to talk to you about is um, there are times when you're going to need a lot of courage. And courage comes inside of you. And and Maslow said that we're all born with it. But it takes a good crisis for it to start bubbling up. And I want to tell you that I learned about courage through a number of people. Uh, One was Jim Brogan, who uh, was a professional basketball player for the Golden State Warriors. Uh, Started a couple of companies, took them public. And he used to say, you know, Deborah, you have to have the courage of your convictions. You have to line up your actions and make sure that they meet your goals. And when all of that is set and done, you just go forward and you go for it. And when it gets scary, you keep thinking, I can make it. The second thing is, uh, in truly tough times in my life, I've taken his advice and tried to remind myself to be courageous. It may sound a little uh, dippy, but I wear this courage bracelet, and I've been wearing it for about 10 years. And when I get into some tough spots, whether it's with an executive team, and it may be a matter of speaking the truth, and it's not comfortable to speak the truth, I look down at this and it reminds me of who I am, what I stand for, what my values are, and why I'm here and what I'm trying to accomplish and that I have the courage to go forward. It's just a technique that's worked for me uh, and I've had other executives use it and they've come back to me and they said, you know Deborah, that bracelet was kind of hokey but that really works. Um, It's just a kind of mental attitude. Um, Finally, we talk a lot about mentorship, and I'm a very lucky woman. I've had some wonderful mentors. Uh, when I was in undergraduate school, I worked for the Dean for Women, who was one of the top 25 most powerful women in the United States. At the, the age of 24, I met a young uh, member of the Board of Supervisors named Jackie Spear. Uh, And she went on to public life in the assembly and I worked with her. I worked with her uh, when she was a senator and I took a leave of absence from my own company to become her chief of staff when she ran for lieutenant governor. Uh, And I want to tell you how that came about. It didn't come about that I walked up to her and said, Jackie Spear, will you be my mentor? What it came about was a cause. I had a cause that I wanted to see women further their leadership, and I cared deeply about it. And everybody kept saying to me, well, you should go meet that supervisor, Jackie Spears. She does a lot for women. And so I did. And she said to me, well, Deborah, I have a project that I could use your help on. And it was called The Feminization of Poverty. We did hearings. Um, And I ended up interviewing. all kinds of women, from corporate leaders to prostitutes that were working the tenderloin to support their families. Um, Through that, we took on Governor Schwarzenegger on the steroids issue, uh, and I've had some wonderful experiences, but it came out of very hard work. And that's another thing that Maslow said. Uh, He said uh, self-actualization doesn't come from sitting with the, the Zen Buddhists and the Tibetan monks. It comes from day in and day out, finding a cause, and working very, very hard. I think the same thing comes from mentorship. So in conclusion, I'd like to introduce to you my mentor and another blue-haired lady to lots of other women, and that's Jackie Speer.
2: Well, we are thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to be here uh, in part because I have a son that goes to this school and I thought maybe I'd see a sighting of him um, while I was here. Uh, My hope is starting to dwindle because I think he's got a midterm. But any case, uh, uh, we are pleased to be with you and we're excited to be with you because we know that in this classroom are a couple of entrepreneurs that are going to change the face of this earth. Um, I hope that um, as you contemplate your future you will think of yourselves as entrepreneurs, not just of widgets, but of people. One of uh, my favorite sayings is one by someone who said, who's anonymous, who said that there is something for each of us to do, and if we do not do it, it will not get done. It's kind of a heavy thought when you think about it. There's something for each of us to do, and if we do not do it, it will not get done. I'm gonna give you a couple of examples. Uh, One is a woman who lost her daughter to a drunk driver. So what did she do with her life? What did she do that no one else could do? She founded an organization called Mothers Against Drug Driving. Her name, Candy Leitner. Because she did what she did, she transformed the way this country looks at driving and drinking. What was tolerated before, what was a slap on the hands before, is now time in county jail or state prison. Another example very close to home. He's probably been a speaker here. A father of a young child with diabetes. He wants his son to grow up and not be compromised because of his diabetic condition. So what does he do? The one thing that he was called to do He qualifies an initiative for the ballot and asks all Californians, are you willing to put up a $3 billion bond measure for stem cell research in California? His name? Robert Klein. He succeeded. All of us said yes, overwhelmingly said yes. And because of that one person's actions, We are now going to be spending $3 billion on research that will probably find the cure to things like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, diabetes, because he stepped up. All right. So I want to tell you a little bit about my story, my experiences, and how it has molded um, my leadership and what I see in all of you as, as, as future leaders. Rose Kennedy, the mother of uh, John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, once said, life should not be measured in milestones, but in moments. And one of my moments occurred back in 1978. I was the legal counsel to the late Congressman Leo J. Ryan. He was investigating whether or not a church, in quotes, in San Francisco called the People's Temple, and the Reverend Jim Jones, who had taken about 900 of their congregation to the jungles of Guyana and created a community there, whether or not those residents were being held there against their will, whether or not there was mind control going on, whether or not there was sexual abuse, gun running. So the congressman started the investigation. We interviewed a lot of people. He finally decided that the only way he was going to find out for sure was to go down himself. So the State Department says, you know, be our guest. We went down, we finally got an invitation from uh, Jim Jones to come to the community in the jungles of Guyana and it is a jungle like you would expect a jungle to be, overgrown with vegetation, except as you drove in this um, dump truck to the site, um, you saw crops growing, you saw a pavilion, you saw cabins, you saw a medical <laughs> clinic, childcare center, and this had all been built in less than two years, so you had to be impressed. Once there we interviewed people, Uh, there was a number of members of the press who had joined us on the trip along with uh, concerned relatives, and as one of the reporters, an ABC reporter from Los Angeles named Don Harris, was circling the pavilion, two people came up to him and slipped him notes that said, I want to leave. So we knew then that in fact what we had feared was true, that people were being held there against their will, and it was our responsibility now to get out as many as wanted to leave. The following day, um, all hell broke loose. Um, custody battles broke out. One parent wanting to stay, pulling the child with one arm. Another parent wanting to leave, pulling the child with the other. Uh, the, Jim Jones became irrational. Um, and we <coughs> escorted about 40 people out that day. Congressman Ryan stayed behind with another probably 40 or 50 people. Then there was a knifing attempt on his life. And so the uh, embassy official brought him to the truck as it was leaving. We get to the airstrip, we think, oh, finally, we're, we're safe. Uh, what we didn't know was that there was a tractor-trailer following behind us with seven gunmen on it. Congressman Ryan was shot 45 times and assassinated, the first and only congressman in the history of this country to lose his life in that manner. I was shot five times on that airstrip. I was 28 years old, and I realized in a split second that my life was over, that my dreams of living to be 85 were not going to happen. And then when the lights didn't go off out, I, I vowed that, one, that I would try and prevent my grandmother from living through my funeral. Two, that if I did survive, that I would dedicate my life to public service. Now I spent 22 hours on that airstrip without medical attention. You have moments of clarity that you never, ever have otherwise. So um, I came back, uh, was hospitalized for two months, had 10 surgeries. Um, They never thought my radial nerve was going to come back. I was in this contraption. Um, It did, in fact, um, regenerate, as you can see. I then came home after two months to an incredible welcoming of family and friends and even the nuns from the high school that I had gone to. And I thought, oh gosh, this is wonderful. And for the first time in two months, I didn't feel pain. Not that there wasn't pain, but that I was other-directed. I was looking elsewhere. And it was there and then, two days after I had arrived home, that I went down to the county courthouse, took out papers to run for Congress. for two reasons, to continue the legacy of Congressman Ryan and, frankly, for therapy, to get me to think of others, to stop thinking about myself and my trauma and to move on. So I ran for Congress, and in a six-week campaign, raised $20,000. Sounds kind of funny now, doesn't it? Uh, Had a $7,000 deficit at the end of it. I came in third in the field of 12. I learned a huge lesson, though, I was as capable as the other candidates. I knew as much about domestic and foreign policy, if not more. Um, And I had grown from that experience. Now, that wasn't the first time I had lost an election. I lost for student body president in high school. Um, So that was my second strike. I'll tell you about my third strike um, a little bit later. Um, So the following year, I um, ran for the Board of Supervisors against a 20-year incumbent. And they said, she doesn't have a chance. One of the messages I want you to um, keep in your mind's eye is that success is never final and failure is never fatal. I lost that election, but I had survived. I had learned a lot. The following year, I run for the Board of Supervisors against a 20-year incumbent, and guess what? I beat him by 18,000 votes, becoming the youngest member of the Board of Supervisors in San Mateo County's history. still the record, I might add. Uh, Six years later, I run for the State Assembly, uh, for the seat that Congressman Ryan had held uh, when he was in the Assembly, when I first went to work for him as an intern when I was an undergraduate at UC Davis. By the way, I got rejected from Stanford University um, (laughs) when I applied to college. Um, So um, I then run for the State Assembly. I'm reminded of what the president of this university said at the convocation this year. And I think if it's still on his website, you should go back and read his speech. Because one of the things he says is that in his experience, nobody has been truly successful without having failed. And you can't be afraid to fail. And be truly successful. So I'm running for the State Assembly. As it turns out, it was a Democratic primary, but the Democrats in Sacramento had another candidate in mind. It was the year of the family and the seated member had a brother-in-law who wanted to be a State Assemblyman. So they spent $750,000 trying to make sure he got elected and I didn't. Not one Democratic colleague um, supported me. There was not one uh, interest group in Sacramento that supported me. the end of the campaign, I went from having a 14-point lead to a zero lead. A week before the election, I took out a $50,000 loan against my condominium. Kind of risky. I'm 36 years old. I'm holding a check for $50,000 in my hand. It's 1986. That's, that was big bucks then. Maybe still is to some of you now. But in any case, um, that's what? About two years education? No, it's about a year. What is it? It's about a year and a half here. I don't even like to think about it. Um, In any case, um, I take out this loan. I get the mail out that wouldn't have gotten out without it. I took the risk. Good thing I did, because I won that election by less than 500 votes out of 40,000 votes cast. (coughs) I'm then in the state assembly. What are some of the leadership lessons I learned there? Question the status quo. As leaders, you have to question the way things are as opposed to the way things should be. If all you want to do is to kind of retain what is now, you will not be a leader. So one of my first experiences was um, joining with the President Pro Tem of the Senate, who was then David Roberti, Roberti, on a ban on assault weapons. Now at the time, this is 1989, the National Rifle Association was incredibly powerful, and nobody took them on, nobody, because if they did, they got taken out in the following election. But I felt strongly about this issue, and so I joined with him in this effort. Then the Stockton Massacre happened. I don't even know if you were alive um, at that time, but, uh, or maybe you were just born. Um, but that was where a, a man came into a Stockton playground and just um, shot down, I don't know, 10, 15 children. Mentally disturbed man. So the bill gets over to the assembly side. I'm the jockey of the bill. I stand up, I make the presentation. One of my colleagues throws up his mic and says, I have a question for you, Miss Spear. And I said, I yield. He says, "Miss Spear, have you ever shot an assault weapon? He says it again. Ms. Spear, have you ever shot an assault weapon? Like, if you haven't shot one, how could you possibly be carrying legislation to ban it? And I thought to myself, if this man is stupid enough to say this, going to let him have it. So I turned to him and said, no, I haven't, but let me ask you this question. Have you ever been shot by an assault weapon? <laughs> <laughs> of course, he had nothing more to say. He sits down. Um, I finish my, um, my statement, and the bill flies off the assembly floor goes to then Republican Governor Pete Wilson, and Pete Wilson signs the bill banning assault weapons in California. Now, had we not questioned the status quo, if we had been fearful, that would have never happened. More recently, I took on the prison system here in California. You should all care about the prison system in California. We have 170,000 inmates in state prison, We have 170,000 students at the University of California. We spend five times as much money on the inmates in state prison as we do the students at the University of California. Now, since you're rivals, maybe you think that's cool. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) But in any case, um, the prison guards got a 37% increase over five years. The professors at UC got a 3% increase over five years. Now, we should all care about that because the synergy that exists between the bright minds at Stanford and the bright minds at UCSF and the bright minds at UC Berkeley and throughout the University of California system is what makes this region in particular so incredibly strong. Point in fact, UCSF professor Herb Boyer sits down with a venture capitalist named Bob Swanson over a couple of beers in a Union Street cafe, 1986. Who am I talking about? Genentech. Genentech. They have a three-hour conversation, they shake hands, and they founded the company called Genentech. In so doing, they also founded Biotechnology for the Globe. South San Francisco now boasts 80 biotech companies (coughs) alone. Hundreds of thousands of employees um, in this very region. So um, I took on the prison system at a time when I probably shouldn't have, because I was running for the lieutenant governor's post. The prison guards have a $15 million campaign coffer. Now, we can't actually trace where and if the money went um, to another candidate, Um, but I do know that they wanted me out. But it was my responsibility to do what I believed was right. Another lesson I learned in terms of leadership is know when to walk away from the table when you're negotiating. For four years, I carried legislation on privacy. It made sense to me. Your financial information belongs to you, not the financial institution, the bank, the credit card company, uh, the securities firm. But the truth of um, the situation was that uh, we, in fact, had all of our information being sold without our permission, and these institutions were making, on average, about $500 million, M, million dollars a year off of Californian's financial information. Now you may say, oh, it's the Internet era. I mean, you know, there's no such thing as privacy. You might think differently about it when you apply for health insurance at some later date in your life, and you don't know this, but there's a dossier on you, and they know that... Um, for instance you buy a lot of beer of course it's for the frat but they don't know that so they think they take make assumptions about your behavior and your drinking so they decide they're going to charge you a premium for your health insurance or maybe not give you life insurance at all or let's say they find out that you engage in high-risk activities recreational activities and so they decide that they're not going to offer you a particular policy. Um, That's why your financial information should be yours and yours alone, that you should have control over it. So four years that battle went on. Fourth year I walked away from the table. I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I then went to um, the CEO of a company called Elone, Chris Larson, who has since sold that company and started another one called Prosper.com. And I said to him, Chris, you care about the internet, you want to make sure there's privacy on the internet so that people will actually take their loans from you, will you help me? He went to his board of directors and said, I want $750,000 to qualify an initiative on the ballot to protect financial privacy. They gave him the $750,000. We qualified the initiative for the ballot, and guess what happened? all those special interests wanted to come back and talk. And as a result of those negotiations, we got the strongest financial privacy law in the country put in place. But it required me to walk away from the table at one point. Another thing happened in my life that's um, worth mentioning, less about leadership, more about um, survival. Um, Sometimes life gives you lemons, and you've got to make lemonade. So I am a state assembly member. Uh, I'm married. Uh, I have our first child, the first legislator to have a baby while in office, and life is really sweet. I'm 38 years old. We then have, um, have a couple of miscarriages. We then adopt a baby. The birth mother takes the baby back. And I'm feeling kind of blue about it. I mean, why are these bad things happening to us? My husband says to me, now, wait a minute. I mean, we've got each other. We've got this great son. We've got our health, and we can try again. Well, we go to a fertility specialist who says, you know, based on the age of your eggs, um, if you ever go into medicine, don't be indelicate like that. Based on the age of your eggs and your uh, medical history, you have about a 10% chance of getting pregnant with in vitro. So those aren't great odds. We decide to close that chapter. I start running for statewide office as Secretary of State. And lo and behold, I get pregnant naturally. Now, my husband thought it was immaculate conception, but um, (laughs) I told him that clearly wasn't the case. But um, so we were absolutely in seventh heaven. And then two weeks later, he was killed in an automobile accident by a young driver who had no brakes, knew he had no brakes, ran a red light, and killed him. Now, my husband was an ER doc at the county hospital, saving poor people's lives every single day. And he was snuffed out just like this. So now I am a single parent. I'm pregnant with our second child. My husband regrettably let his life insurance lapse uh, nine months before. And I'm three months from personal bankruptcy. Those are tough challenges. And I am a um, UC-educated lawyer. So what do you do? Well, you know, it's one of those things where you've got a choice. You can be a victim. Or you could be a survivor. And so I chose um, over a period of time to be a survivor. And um, some six months later, our baby daughter was born, who is now 12. And um, I moved on with life. Each of you will have those kinds of personal challenges in your life. No one is untouched. But part of what you have to do is you know, build a reservoir of strength and fortitude to be able to handle difficult and improbable <coughs> experiences that will come your way. As um, life moved on, I um, then eight years later, after being a single mother, got tired of that, um, I uh, married again, and uh, uh, my husband has been um, an incredible joy in my life and has since adopted our two children. So um, a happy ending of sorts. Uh, In my professional life, I then went on to run for Lieutenant Governor of California. Uh, There is a paperweight on my desk that I encourage you to write down. And remember, what would you do if you knew you could not fail? What would you do if you knew you could not fail? It's one of the most empowering things that you can say to yourself. Because we are all, one way or the other, afraid to fail. And it oftentimes prevents us from doing the things that can be indeed um, the most rewarding um, in business or in our personal lives. So I was looking at that, debating whether or not to run for lieutenant governor, and decided to run. So, um, $4 million later, and that's what I was able to raise, um, a million dollars more than my closest opponent, who had run statewide five times before. So I was taking on someone who had um, a great deal of name ID already. I got 19 out of 21 editorial endorsements of newspapers in California. And I lost the race by 2.9% of the vote in the Democratic primary. So you are looking at a three-time loser. I'm still standing. Um, I'm happy. I know that there is another challenge and opportunity that awaits me, and every one of the experiences I've had has taught me so much and given me the ability to take on some titans in business from time to time, to take on thorny issues of public policy that needed to be addressed, Um, and I can kind of – walk through the rest of my life knowing that it has been um, an important road that I have walked down and one that has been personally and professionally fulfilling. So my last word for you is a, a non-word. It's called Lisden. L-I-S-D-I-N. Life is short. Do it now. So with that, I think Deborah and I are, are welcome. Uh, we'll welcome your questions. You. Is that yours?
1: There are no questions. Yes. Sure, my question is about uh, uh, when you decided to walk away from the from the pill. Uh, so. So you said that you, you, know, you, you had to walk away for it to work.
2: But how did you realize that you needed to walk away? Because what they wanted me to do was water down the bill to the point where it would have no value. You know, in the legislature, as in other arenas, we fall in love with our ideas, and more than anything, we want to just get a—in in my case—a bill to the governor's desk to get it signed. But if it and, and I can tell you, there's lots of bills that get to the governor's desk that have very little value because they've been watered down so much. But at least they can say, Oh, I got a bill passed. Um, so I wasn't willing to do that. Yes? Uh, when your husband passed away, what did you do on sort of a daily basis to be a survivor instead of a victim? Uh, well, it, it wasn't easy. There were days I did not get out of bed. Um, there was... Um, One interchange I had with my father where um, he came over. I was on bed rest because it was a high-risk pregnancy. Uh, And uh, I was telling him I was just feeling very blue. You know, my husband had been dead for um, probably three months, and I was pregnant with our second child. Didn't know if it made sense to bring a baby into this world without a dad. And my father, who's quite Germanic, said to me, Jackie, it's been three months. Get over it.
1: I'd like, you know, I'd like to comment on that because I... I actually was there when this was happening, and one of the things when I talked about build relationships and not networks, um, that's what Jackie has built, uh, relationships, and and during the the tough times uh, like this, those people come through for you. Um, And we actually, and Barbara is, Barbara Kaplan is a part of Stanford. We all formed a team around Jackie find a lawyer, find a realtor, find a this, find a that, um, and helped her out. And it came out of those relationships over many years, which you need to build now. Yeah.
0: So Jackie, you've made the decision to make a difference in the world through politics. Uh, is can you tell us a little bit more about that decision to continue to pursue that direction as
2: your way to have an impact? Well, I'm, I'm going to give you my pure bias here, and I know many of you are challenged with where you, what path you're going to take, and um, you know, being able to survive in a, an economy like this is, is a tough one, and being able to live in, in an environment like this is tough. But I, I've got to say that um, having been in the private sector and been in the public sector, They're two very different experiences. In the private sector, and uh, I was, you know, working for a very profitable video game company, Um, you could take pride if something you did helped the stock um, increase uh, a quarter of a point, I guess. Um, But it's a whole different experience to be able to say, I just had a law passed that is affecting 37 million people. When you have an idea in the public sector, oftentimes you can run with it. You don't have someone above you kind of putting it down or, you know, uh, no, we can't do this. Um, so for me, it was a very empowering opportunity to, to look at issues and just decide, I'm going to take this on. Um, so I think the public sector is personally very, very rewarding. Um, you're, you're not going to get rich. But you're also not going to be on the corner with you know, a, a sandwich board asking for um, spare change.
1: Or you can mix it up like I have and, true. and work with leaders like Jackie, but what I really do for a living is in, in the private sector. Um, and so I, I really think that I've had absolutely the best of both worlds, to work on issues because of my friendship with her that started out, not knowing her, but hard work, um, that have made a difference, but still be involved in working in the private sector. And then you can do it like other people, where they make their their mark on the world after they've had their business success, like Chris Larson, perfect example, of what he's doing now. Um, he launched some company that's providing loans to third-world comp- third people in the poorest Places of the world. And helping people with no credit get a credit history so they, mm-hmm. they can get loans.
0: Can I ask another question? Sure, of course. So, uh, you haven't talked about the issue
2: of women in leadership <coughs> positions. Maybe you could talk a little
1: bit about that. Why don't you start, Deborah? The, well, I want uh, to tell you a story. Uh, At the age of 21, I was ready to take on corporate America. I'd been mentored by um, the dean for women at my school. Also, McElby and Jacqueline, who were very famous psychologists who had written a book called The, The Psychology of Sex Differences, they were actually my professors. So if there was anybody prepared to take on corporate America, I would have to be in the top 10. I was one of very few women in the culture. And in a matter of six months, I thought there was something very wrong with me, so I decided to fix myself. Well, if I could only learn how to negotiate better. Maybe I should change my dress. I cut my hair. I learned how to play poker. I read the Wall Street Journal and I even took golf lessons only so that I could fit in with the conversations and the culture. I quit wearing makeup. Now that's how that culture affected someone like me that had been mentored and was strong. And that's the power of a male culture on an educated woman. And I say that because when you're at the top, everything that you do and the rewards and the behaviors that you accept as a leader filters down. So one day I had just simply had it. I had been in 14 cities in seven days Uh, And there came a note back to my office that said, Debra, while you were in New York, did you get your shopping fix? I marched into my boss's office, who was the vice president, and I said, this company is nothing but a bunch of sexist men. And I stormed out, I went to the bathroom, and I cried. (laughs) I came out, I wiped off my mascara, went back to my office and acted like nothing had happened. Uh, The next day, the CEO of the company summoned me for lunch. And we went to the sun deck over here on Sand Hill Road, where all the VCs hang out. And I thought, gee, I'm going to be fired, but I guess this is a great place for it to happen. (laughs) Um, He grilled me. Deborah, why don't you feel you fit in? Why can't you be successful here? Why, why d- this? Why that? Why this? And I thought, well, he's going to fire me, so I should just tell him the truth. And I did. You know what he said to me? He was an enlightened CEO. He said, I agree with you, and I want talent. I don't care if it's male or female. I care if it's human.
2: <laughs>
1: and he recruited me to help him change the culture he left after two years to take on another job guess what happened to me what do you think i did within 24 hours of him taking the company i resigned because i knew without him at the helm with that enlightened attitude i didn't stand a chance so for all of you men who may run companies Can you just remember that? It's very important that the cultures that you build at the top and how it affects smart women. That was a long answer, but that's a good one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So um, Deborah is an example of um, one of my favorite t-shirt messages. Polite women don't make history. Now for The period of time that that she and her CEO boss were there there was a culture shift in that organization because she wasn't polite about it and it is very easy for women because of um, the way we are raised more than anything else to be polite about everything so for women leaders on occasion you're going to have to be (coughs) impolite to achieve what it is you want to achieve. Um, I would also say that I think that the kinds of, of leadership strengths that women bring um, to you know, corporate California uh, are much like the ones that, that they bring to the legislature and that is they want to build consensus. Um, there's a lot of great books that have been written. Deborah's done a fair amount of research on on this, the leadership styles of women and how it is the, becoming the leadership style of the 21st um, century. Now, I will also say this what is very interesting about this generation, your generation that hasn't existed before, is that all of you are concerned about work life balance. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to an expert um, at UCSF who's just finished a study. Um, just yesterday. And the study is about why we're not getting students to go into medicine and how within the next 10 or 15 years we're going to have a dearth of physicians in California because of the issues around um, life work balance. And part of what they're finding out is that, you know, men and women are concerned about that now. So it's going to behoove the leaders of corporate California to create workplaces in which family is not just um, tolerated but embraced um, if we're going to get the best and the brightest in in these various posts.
1: One one thing that I heard Guy Kawasaki say uh, a couple of years ago at one of his Art of the Start venture things, and he may have said it here, he said, always have a woman read your business plan. Have you heard this before? Because the guys say, I'm going to take on Larry Ellison. We're just going to tear down Oracle. And the women look at it and say, are you crazy? Is there someone you could partner with? How about if we went in this way and collaborated? And uh, it, it's an interesting uh, statement on, on the different styles that some uh, women and men leaders operate under. I was just curious how you got into writing
2: books and if you plan to continue doing that. (laughs) You go first.
1: Um, I never planned to write any books. It came out of my love of research and understanding. I'm really curious. And uh, the first book that we did on customer service led to us. I'll have to tell you, the Maslow family called me up out of the blue, the Maslow sisters. He was the father of psychology. And they had heard about me through uh, one of my books and they asked me to look at a journal that their father had kept in the 60s. And he was working with a company here on Sand Hill Road. They sent me this journal and it was the most fascinating material I'd ever read and so far ahead of its time that uh, I went about trying to get it published and publi- I had some pretty good connections because of the first book and publishers were like, Deborah, you're a little off here. I mean, this is really old stuff. Lo and behold, the Wall Street Journal reporter got a hold of it, It wrote two columns about it, and the next thing I know I had offers from every major publisher in America uh, because it, it really was enlightening and ahead of its time. From then, I, it, from there, it was still relationships. I had met Warren Bennis, who's at USC, who's a, a Guru in leadership, because Maslow had mentored him, and I ended up doing revisiting the human side of enterprise with Warren Bennis um, with Jackie uh, we had this uh, this relationship for about twenty eight years, um, and during some really tough times in our lives, we convened what we call our kitchen table coaching sessions, and that 's where our women 's book came from and this was Uh, four women who got together and we just strategized over uh, taking action in our lives on some of the really bad things that that have happened to her, that happened to me. Um, And it was a way of having mind share and and looking for the optimistic, positive way out. So that's how I ended up in books. I never expected to ever do any of them. And I would say that... Uh, this is like my first book as opposed
2: to seventh book as it is for Deborah. Um, and it's a labor of love. Uh, it is not something that you will get wealthy on. Um, but it's a great opportunity to, uh, to educate if, if you want to go into writing. Um, it's a, a means by which you can you know, talk to groups. And um, from our perspective, it's all about hopefully changing people's lives.
1: We have a persistent story in the women's book. I wanted to, to, as I'm thinking about it, and women's leadership styles. Um, It took us 10 years to do this book, because we had no intention of ever writing a book. Uh, And then when we actually put it together, there were many publishers who were interested, but they wanted us to turn it into something that it wasn't. Um, And we kept saying no. So we decided to do it ourselves. Lo and behold, when we made that decision, we also (laughs) sat down with the CEO of Kaiser Permanente, and through our paper manuscript, they bought 8,000 copies, uh, which led to a number of publishers (laughs) wanting our book because we proved that it had a market. So the moral of that story is is, is you you just go for your dreams and keep going and and find the avenues and the ways uh, and be persistent.
0: You talked a little bit about the difference between the public and the private sector. Can you talk more about the politics within each and how some of the interpersonal relationships and the network, as you talked about, are, are different?
2: Um, well, in, in the private sector, uh, you don't, at least in my experience, I didn't have the freedom to explore issues and to do things that I had as a kind of you're a solo. Um, CEO, so to speak, when you're a legislator and, you know, can basically do um, whatever you want. Now, you've got to develop networks, and you develop it by um, developing support groups that can persuade your colleagues um, to support your legislation and get it passed into law.
1: Yeah, I think, um, having worked with Jackie in, in the public sector and working with leaders in the private sector, the difference that I see is a style of leadership. Um, we've spent two decades now teaching leaders in corporate America to collaborate and to build teams. Um, that certainly is not the case in politics. Uh, it's It's power at its best and worst. Um, and that's why I'm so I have such admiration for Jackie because women in that environment. It's one of the toughest environments I've ever seen for a woman leader. Um, There isn't a lot of trust among the the teammates. You can have someone that you think is on your side with a big project and in public you find out that's not the case. Um, So it's – and it's by sheer willpower that the great politicians that we know, like the Kennedys, and and that they just keep at it and it's that cause. But in my perspective, it's a tough, tough world, much more so than corporate America, just because of the environment.
2: So in order to be chosen, you need to raise money for your campaign, and many times that's from a special interest group. So how do you balance those interests with the general public interest? Well, you, you gain a reputation in, in the capital pretty quickly, whether you know, a $3,000 contribution can buy you off or not. Um, and you know, I was one of those that would take money from the insurance industry when I was chair of the insurance committee. But they loathed me because I was a consumer advocate. Um, That's what I believed my role was, and I was going to do what I believed was right. So when we had the firestorms in Southern California and these insurance companies were uh, bad actors, I held hearings and brought them to task and had the Department of Insurance look into their um, behavior. So you do – I mean, it is the mother's milk of politics, they say. But um, one of the famous uh, speakers of the State Assembly, his name was Jess Unruh, said that um, – well, he he actually said, I don't know if I can say it in public, if you can't um, drink their booze, eat their food, do whatever to their women, and um, uh, vote against them, uh, then you shouldn't be in elective office. Um, He also had another great line that um, would be true for you in business uh, for those of you who are contemplating that, if I had slain all my enemies today, I would have no friends tomorrow. <laughs> and I found that to really be the case when I was trying to get legislation through that required proof of auto insurance at time of registration. For a long time, we didn't have it uh, on the books in California, and we had almost a 33 percent uninsured motorist. Um, I I ended up. Uh, linking with a Republican colleague to get the legislation through the process, and it was his relationship with Pete Wilson at the time that made Pete Wilson at the 11th hour on the final day to sign bills when everyone, the insurance industry was against the bill, his own insurance advisor told him not to sign the bill, that he signed the bill.
1: I have a couple stories to follow that up. Um, Many, many years ago, Jackie had uh, carried a bill on uh, garnishing the wages of a parent who hadn't paid child support. And I met her at an event, and she says to me, Deborah, look, I have a bulletproof vest on. And I'm like, you have a bulletproof? Yes, there's been a threat against my life. And I'm sitting next to her at this (laughs) event. And I'm saying, gee. Uh, Do you think that that person's here because I'm sitting next to you and I don't have one on? (laughs) Um, So that's kind of the kind of backlash that. The second thing is, is, so I'm taking a leave of absence from my company. I've worked with all these leaders and she's running for lieutenant governor and she decides to take on the prison industry. I'm in Sacramento and I'm walking down the street and they're handing out phony dollar bills with derogatory statements about Jackie Speier, and the hand went to me and I'm looking at it and I'm saying, oh boy, do we have a problem here, and I go back to her office and then I find out that they're planning a rally where 5,000 of them are going to show up to take her on and to paint her as a bad leader. So I walk into her office and I'm saying, Jackie, I think we need to rethink this thing. This doesn't sound like a good strategy. I mean, they're passing it out blah, 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 blah. And she said something to me that stopped me dead in my tracks. I will never forget it as long as I live. She said, I will do the right thing no matter what. What I've already lived through, what could scare me, I'm going to continue because it's wrong. And that was the end of our conversation. And... When I talked to you earlier about courage, we have it in ourselves to make those tough ethical decisions. Um, And in that world, there are so few of them, in my opinion, who do that.